الجزيرة بودكاست. Hi there, it's Malika. Sometimes the news changes. When we recorded this episode of The Take, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky had not yet announced Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russia. On Sunday, June 11th, he did. Why is that important? Have a listen. An explosion has broken the Kakova Dam open, and now water has flooded both sides of the Dnipro River, the river dividing Russian-occupied Ukraine from the rest of Ukraine. Thousands have been evacuated, but many more remain in their homes. Al Jazeera's Charles Stratford went out on a boat through the flooded areas. There are still people who are either too afraid or too weak to be evacuated, the elderly, the infirm, or are refusing to leave. Ukraine is blaming Russia for destroying the dam, and Russia is blaming Ukraine. The dam is upstream from the Crimean Peninsula, annexed by Russia nearly a decade ago. And Crimea could be a main focus in Ukraine's counteroffensive. You liberate Crimea, that changes everything. The main effort will be in that region, again, trying to cut off that land bridge. You cannot think that it's going to be peace for Ukraine with territory occupied by Russia on Ukrainian territory. What else can the world expect from Ukraine's counteroffensive and Russia's response, if it's truly begun? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Charles, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. I know that you've been covering Ukraine now for years. How long has it been? My first visit was before the first ceasefire. So uh, I think January 2015 was the first. Many times since, and I think this is the ninth trip since the war or the full-scale invasion started. Wow. I imagine every assignment is different. Where am I catching you now? I'm in a town called Kriviri, which is, I suppose, about two hours north of Kherson, the sort of central southern section of Ukraine. Every day we've been hearing about escalations in the fighting, but this latest story that's making the headlines is about flooding, flooding along the Dnipro River after a dam explosion, which, of course, is part of the fighting. The waters of Ukraine's Dnipro River surge downstream towards dozens of towns and villages. Russia is blaming Ukraine. Ukraine is blaming Russia. This is effectively a front line, which separates territory Ukraine controls and Russia occupies. You've been out on a boat in some of the flooded areas. What is happening? What have you seen? Yeah, that's right. Vast great areas are now underwater. As you can imagine, on both sides of the river, we've had access to the Ukrainian side, but it's a similar story on the Russian-occupied side of the river. There are huge areas that are completely inundated with water. Yulia Shapovalova has been covering the Russian reaction for Al Jazeera from Moscow. There, Russian President Vladimir Putin accused Ukraine of a, quote, barbaric act. The local pro-Russian authorities of Nové Kakhovka uh, denied the accusations, uh, the Russians behind the destruction of the uh, station. They have also said that the uh, Kakhovka hydroelectric power station cannot be restored. 
the Russian-appointed mayor of the town of Novaya Kakhovka, Vladimir Leontiev, said that the destruction of the station was a catastrophe, which was created by the Ukrainian authorities and those who controlled them. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky disagreed and accused, quote, Russian terrorists of destroying the dam. He made a visit to the flooded areas last week. Ukraine's president visited Kherson to inspect evacuation operations. Vladimir Zelensky praised rescue crews and discussed getting clean water and other relief supplies into the disaster zone. He's also calling for more help from international aid organizations. But Charles says after that visit, the fighting continued. Zelensky had left. And what we believe were either mortar shells or artillery shells were landing very close to the Ukrainian evacuation points. We understand at least one person was killed and a number of others injured. But as I say, both sides were to blame for the shelling, as one can imagine this evacuation effort continues on the other side of the river. The people we spoke to today, the emergency services and volunteers, said that they estimated just in the area they were operating in, which no more than really about a kilometre, They estimated that there were still around a 1,000 people trapped or refusing to be evacuated. There are huge areas that are completely inundated with water. We were down in Kherson city today. The water had risen, evacuations were ongoing. People who are terrified about leaving their belongings, many of them have nowhere to go. These are just some of the people Charles spoke to there. It's very hard to explain. Honestly, it's still hard to speak, very hard. I don't know where I'm going. We were taken out and now we're on our own. I kept sitting, hoping that I would stay there. And then the water began to run with such force that, well, my son thought of it. He took a boat from a neighbour and thanks to this we got out. And there were great fears, as you can imagine, about the availability of of drinking water, getting food and water. So, yeah, terrible situation. As you rightly say, the Ukrainians blamed the Russians for doing it. I think in all likelihood, all evidence would suggest that they are responsible because of, certainly according to Ukraine intelligence, and, and, and that is consistent with what military analysts will say, was this a move by Russia to try and prevent a push by the Ukrainians from the Kherson region across the river to Crimea? I think that is in all likelihood what happened. I mean, some people are a little bit more sceptical than that. and They say, well, why wouldn't the Ukrainians do it in a bid to isolate Crimea and then, for example, smash the Kerch Bridge? to put pressure on Russia forces that way. But the level of catastrophic damage to cities like Kherson and other towns and settlements in the area, the amount of money that it's going to cost to get these areas back up and running, it seems highly inconceivable that Ukraine would be behind this destruction of this dam. Yeah, you know, we're more than a year into this war. And so the people that are there are on one of the fronts of the war, but clearly they're still at home. They've been hunkering down, presumably. And now they're being made to evacuate because of a flood, something unexpected, most likely. Where are they going? Where would they be evacuated to? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible just to put Kherson in context, as you rightly point out. I mean, this is a town that was right on the front line at the initial stages of the invasion. So it was attacked by Russian forces in the first week. And people endured months of, of occupation. And the people who live in Kherson and the people who return, they're so highly respected by many Ukrainians because they put up such brave opposition to the Russian occupation. They were then, as they describe, liberated by Ukrainian forces. They are under shelling pretty much every day. And now, yes, the destruction of this dam means that they're being forced to evacuate again because of the flooding. 
Where are they going? Many of them are being taken by buses to some of the surrounding larger cities. We understand that the majority of them are either being put up in, in hotels or staying with family and friends. But, but that's often the refrain, as I say, that you hear from people when asking them, why don't you want to move from a given conflict area in Ukraine? And it's a lot of the time it's, look, I've got literally nowhere else to go. So I know that we've been hearing so much about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, has been drumming up support and weapons for months now, preparing for it. Can we say at this point that Ukraine's counteroffensive has begun? So difficult to say. Everybody wants to say it. But, uh, you know, the, the policy here is, and we've heard it from the president himself and the defense establishment, we're not going to get any kind of official announcement that this has begun because, of course, secrecy is something that they need. There are huge restrictions on the media, for example, far more than there have been in covering this war thus far because of the importance of, of keeping this under wraps as much as possible. We know there have been huge troop movements, many of them Western trained troops. It's believed that Ukraine has nine brigades now of troops that have been trained by their allies. That's a lot of men. We know they've been moving into positions. And of course, they've got billions of dollars worth of new kit. But has it started? I think it's definitely safe to say that there has been an escalation in fighting in various different places along the Eastern Front in recent days. Russian forces are saying that they believe that it has started. And analysts, Western intelligence agencies and journalists have all said for a long time that if there is going to be a push in any kind of counteroffensive, as I'm sure you've heard, that counteroffensive would be a bid to try and cut the so-called land bridge between occupied Donetsk and Lugansk and uh, occupied Crimea. And I think what's most interesting is the concentrated fire on places south of Zaporizhia. That area, Zaporizhia, is right in the center, certainly pro-Russian telegram channels, military channels. And let's not forget that these bloggers are actually embedded with the military, these Russian fighters and, and, and the army. They're saying that it's the most intensive shelling and intensive attacks that they've experienced in months. They're saying that the counteroffensive has started, but there's been far less movement. I think, again, it's an indication possibly of it having started because there's far less chatter on the Ukrainian side. There's been a campaign that the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian military have started sort of a campaign of silence. We've seen these videos of, of soldiers heavily armed with their fingers to the mouths. Everybody's keeping storm about this. Hmm. So what will the counteroffensive look like and how much closer will it bring this war to an end? That's after the break. On the Inside Story podcast this week, should governments make breathing clean air a fundamental human right? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So, Charles, this is just the beginning of this new phase, if this is indeed the counteroffensive, and there is likely so much more to come. The front line between Ukraine and Russia extended 600 miles at one point. But the last time we had you on, in May, and earlier in this conversation, you were saying how much of the fight will be centered on Crimea, which Russia annexed more than nine years ago. Well, with a sweep of the pen, Vladimir Putin has moved Crimea under Russia's wing. He's signed a law ratifying the peninsula's annexation. What's the significance of Crimea for Ukraine and for Russia? It's of huge strategic importance to both sides. 
it's of huge cultural and historical importance to both sides. And it is a place, obviously, where we saw in 2014, as an example of how relevant it is to Russia, the so-called little green men that walked into Ukraine and took control of the peninsula. The soldiers had no identifying insignia. They wore plain green uniforms, and they came to be known as the little green men. Sevastopol is the home of the Black Sea Fleet of massive strategic importance to President Putin. There are many that tell you that Putin will never, ever give up Sevastopol. Ukraine sees Crimea as being very much its territory, and it has been made a totem for President Zelensky. In his mind, certainly his rhetoric, there is going to be no end to this war until every piece of territory that's been occupied by the Russians since 2014, including Crimea, is retaken by the Ukrainians which honestly seems highly unlikely. I believe in this 100%. The whole world needs to fight this fight against Russian aggression to overcome terror and return security and predictability to our region in Europe. Therefore, it is necessary to free Crimea from the occupation. That is where the aggression began, and that is where it will end. Crimea is seen as being something that is potentially so explosive seen as being so close to Putin's heart that there are many that will tell you that Western allies are actually warning Zelensky not to push too hard oh, wow. because they're worried about the man in the Kremlin's metaphorical finger over a nasty red button. They're worried about how he will respond to that. But however, there are many military strategists that will say that if you are going to end this war, if you are going to put sufficient amount of pressure on Putin to sit back and say, hang on, then yes, Crimea is where you're going to do it. And just to be clear for our audience, that nasty red button, you mean the nuclear option? I mean tactical nuclear weapons. That's what people are saying. And Sevastopol and the Black Sea Fleet mean so much to Putin. Um, there are many that are saying they would try to dissuade Zelensky from going that far. Wow. Oh, how interesting. Um, so much of the weapons, the training and the financing for this counteroffensive has come from NATO countries. At this point, you mentioned Zelensky not stopping until all Ukrainian territory is reclaimed. What would mark success for the countries supporting Ukraine? Ukraine's international Western allies, so many of them use the same phrase, we're with you for as long as this takes, mm. which is a pretty ambiguous thing to say, really. Because yeah. if they were to say, for example, we're with you until you win, until victory, that mm -hmm. obviously sounds a lot more zero-sum. I think realistically what the West is looking at is for the Ukrainians to make sufficient enough gains that put sufficient enough pressure on Putin. I think there's this sense of you push basically Putin into a point where he may be forced to negotiate. But, you know, we're a long way off that. And sadly, there are going to be a lot more men and women that are going to be killed but he's got to have results. The West want results because they've spent so much money obviously supporting him, both political capital and cash and weapons and the training of these men. So a lot is at stake. There's a lot of pressure on, uh, on the man in Kiev. Yeah. In what's looked like a surprising turn of events with reports of Ukrainian troops, Ukrainian drones carrying out attacks inside Russia, 
The Kremlin spokesperson has made an unverified claim that a Ukrainian sabotage group has crossed into Russian territory. Presumably, this is not leading to a Ukrainian invasion of Russia, but what is the strategy behind that? Most analysts will tell you it's a diversion attempt. And again, it may be an indication that this counteroffensive has begun or it is about to start. They are groups that are made up of both Russians and Ukrainians that are of various different political ideologies that Ukraine says it doesn't support in any way. But it's in Ukraine's interests to arguably use these groups, these incursions, as a means of, of diverting attention and troops and military equipment away from the front towards the security of that border. Some people will also tell you that it is a way of denuding trust and confidence in the leader in the Kremlin, President Putin, amongst Russians living in that area. It's a level of sophistication in Ukrainian military strategy that they are often lauded for by their international backers. So, Charles, without asking you to peer into a metaphorical crystal ball based on what you're hearing and seeing in your reporting. Is there any tiring from Ukraine? You're not seeing tiring, but you're seeing increasing questioning of their own resolve. You know, can we actually do this? There is, as I say, this creeping, ever so subtle sense of self-doubt that now is more more apparent than, than, than I've ever seen before. And finally, as someone who's been in and out of Ukraine since 2014, and you're really in the thick of it there, how are you processing everything you're seeing? It's really difficult to describe. When out in the field, we get on with our jobs as professionally and as efficiently and as key safely as we can. But it doesn't exact a toll on you emotionally, psychologically. And you only really realize this when you come out. That's when I get a, a window into the kind of toll that it takes on me and must take on others. But, you know, it is so fundamentally important that, that we obviously keep telling this story and try and tell it from both sides. But it is difficult at times, very difficult. I mean, to meet men and women who experienced the Second World War, for example, they experienced the, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. To see these men and women now too infirm to move as 70 years later more shells are, are landing on their houses, killing their children, injuring them, destroying everything they know is shocking, disturbing and, um, and sometimes difficult to deal with. But the stoicism, the determination of these people um, is, is, a, is a great inspiration and, and, and pushes you further to continue telling their stories. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters and Sonia Bagat, with David Engers, Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Nagin Oliayi, Khalid Sultan, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tim St. Clair mixed this episode. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio.